Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amber Light podcast. Join Dr. Henry Critella and Joel Lessies for their discussion on Change Yourself and Change the World, the Unity of Mysticism. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. Please give a welcome back to Joel, Joel Lessies. Thank you for doing this again, Joel. It's my great privilege and honor, Henry, to see you again and to see everyone again. Yes. If people don't know Joel who are listening to this, he's a friend of mine. We've been hanging out for a few years around Rochester. And he was originally from Buffalo, and he's a poet. He was previously voted Buffalo's Best Poet. He founded Western New York's Ground and Sky Poetry Series, which is now online, but in person, it's in uh, Rochester, New York. It used to be in Buffalo. He created the podcast Unraveling Religion, and we just had he just interviewed me for the podcast yesterday. That podcast explores world mysticism and spirituality. And he's in the process of working on his autobiography, Odyssey of Autumn's Breath, combining much of his life's poetry with prose. And I hope we can get a sneak sample of that a few times during the podcast. Definitely, definitely. So when we were talking about today, and, you know, it's so obvious that your your heart is into poetry, but we were talking and, you know, your heart is really in spirituality. And it seems like for you, poetry is a way in and an expression of that. And I think we'll get to it. You also, you know, are so uh, involved in how spirituality is expressed in other ways, a reconception of mental health issues and how that dovetails with people's lives and their spirituality. So as we were talking, we were, we really started to discover we really wanted to talk about how it all hangs together. Mm. The outer experiences that we are into and our inner experiences and different ways that that comes together for each of us. For you, it's in an art form. Yeah. Can we start by talking a little about this inner and outer? You know, we entitled this the change yourself and change the world, the unity of criticism. I'm going to be very forthright in um, saying it's the very what holds all these aspects together, and I say it with a measure of thoughtfulness and hopefully some humility, I am the vehicle which holds these things together. And so it is the reason for my incarnation, if you will, that the purpose, you know, I I feel it's no uh, idle secret that I feel it's the very reason for our incarnation is, is to walk a path of care and kindness and wisdom but we're thrown curveballs and we're thrown we're thrown garbage and we're thrown a whole host of things that we cannot see coming. And so how we make sense out of that is the full totality of I feel for me why I've incarnated to make sense out of what was senseless or chaotic. And um as to the inner and outer I I think it touches on that when we change ourselves we think that there's an inner and outer but really it's a direct effect of there is no inner or outer. When I change myself, 
I change the world. It's like saying, what is nature? Well, our body is nature. There's no place that we go to that's nature. The very breath is the bridge that fuels this body that is nature itself. There is no distinction between outer and inner. And I think when we talk about the unity of mysticism, the great confounding element is like ego or identity that somehow I am separate or don't belong or have to figure this out. And it's confounding, but I don't know that that's true that we need to figure it out. We need to live it. We need to experience it, but I'm not so sure we need to quote unquote, figure it out. So you bring up a really interesting point and you said it right away. And I'm so excited about that. It's you. It's each of us. You know, you qualified it. You said, I'm going to be very forthright and I hope I'm doing it with humility. We are fed this misconception that when we say things like that, it's our, our ego, our limited small ego. Mm -hmm. And how dare we say something like that? Right. And, you know, you referenced it at the end of, of your introduction. We have some curveballs. Yeah. And it's our attachments and our habits. Yeah, yeah. Those are things that can get in the way. Yeah. But by and large, we're incarnated. So David Spangler, who a lot of us are studying lately, his group has coined the term incarnational spirituality. Mm -hmm. That for him, if I understand him correctly, the very fact of incarnating is a spiritual experience. So yeah. we're here for a purpose. And it's not just to learn your lesson karmically, or it's not here to go to school. It's here to be the eyes and ears of the universe, to yeah. contribute to evolution. Yeah. And to find our place of service within that, because ultimately, you know, ultimate reality or God, the age of God, whatever you want to name that, however you want to express in words that the ineffable, what you can't really express. It is selfless in nature. There is no self there. So like, if we're created in the image and likeness of it, then the meaning of life is service, is to serve, because it serves us. It only knows giving. It only knows what it can offer. And so when we reciprocate and give back by seeing how we might respond in thoughtfulness, awareness, and compassion, and find our mode of service, which is specific and unique to each incarnation, to each body, to each person, then we're beginning to touch on levels of understanding and meaning that may have been confounding before, but begin to unravel and make sense. I agree with you. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, if you, if you limit yourself, if you limit your incarnation, then you're limiting your expression you're limiting being of service. Yeah. Because you're always busy getting rid of something, getting rid of those gifts with which you were actually born. So for you, it sounds like poetry was one way that something came through. I say this, that life and poetry are like parallel worlds waiting to meet and merge, that they're like lovers yet to be. The practice of poetry is the practice of life. It's listening, responsiveness, becoming a conduit, emptying oneself that you might receive. This is a whole nother aspect that like ego versus a vessel. 
that ego has its place, but like as our capacity to dismantle ego or work on it, and it doesn't have to be eradicated or, or shattered. It can be a slow kind of like contracting of it, but it opens us to receive things that are under the surface that we know are there, but we can't touch, we can't understand, we can't express because we have this psychic energy in us that is ego, that really, when we work with that ego and, and, and shape it in a way that it serves us instead of mastering us, then we open as a conduit to the, the divine. Then when you talk about Henry being the eyes and ears of the universe, it takes on a whole new level. That The whole notion of taste and see that the Lord is good is to me that this is all a gift. The, the the body, the environment, all of it is just given. So do you have a poem that touches on that that you can share? I have a few. And uh, my signature poem that I feel was given to me by the universe uh, is called Through the Day. And I've recited it before. It's, it's a very old poem, but it's kind of like my personalized version of the Heart Sutra, if people are familiar with the Heart Sutra. Uh, the Heart Sutra is in Buddhist teachings, and uh, it's known as, as maybe as a sutra, the, the kernel of Zen. But this is my version of that, which is called Through the Day. This night, moment walking, home with moon, shining mind, this moment itself. Autumn bends, turning in, moonward toward home. It is and is not here, still moon, no mind, same moment, never ending. Thank you. Thank you. My mother died in 2019 and I struggled heavily with mental health stuff at that time. We had a very complex relationship and she took to the grave things, events that may have happened that probably would have helped me in my healing, but she <laughs> decided not to express them. But, um, you know, I say, I said in the eulogy that I really felt was channeled for her, that kind of like, you know, a poet's heart is, is really, it's something very special. And I think she had a poet's heart, but this fighting and struggling with life is not separate from poetry. It's not separate from a poet's heart. Let's talk a little more about that. In Judaism and Jewish mysticism, they say, or in Jewish teaching, they say that your father teaches you what to do, but your mother teaches you who you are. I think it's a very poignant teaching, at least in my family system, that my mother, I always envisioned her, like all her houses were in Mars. She was a fighter vehement for her beliefs. She, you could not put one past her and she would call you out in a heartbeat and, uh, you know, I, I always kind of like quietly saw her as like a, in retrospect, uh, a kind of warrior, you know, and uh, I know that that term is used uh, very freely here. And um, there's an element of that capacity in me to, to, to want to struggle, to, to want to like struggle and overcome to see. And in Bushido, in, uh, in uh, Budo, uh, they talk about there's no enemy outside yourself. The only enemy is ego. So the whole totality of one's incarnation becomes how to dismantle and open that to what we really are, our true self. Yes, thank you. 
We had a, a note from Janice asking if you would reread the poem. Yeah, of course. So it goes like this through the day. This night, moment walking, home with moon, shining mind, this moment itself. Autumn bends, turning in, moonward toward home. It is and is not here, still moon, no mind, same moment, never ending. Thank you. Yeah. Is that going to be in your autobiography when it's published? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, it's for me, the writing, the writing is really, uh, it's taken the place, you know, I say in the dedication, I dedicate it to two beings. I dedicate it to my earthly father and my heavenly father. And, uh, I say that it's my, it's my, it's the documentation like recorded events. So I, I, I try to be so, you know, as you, as you know, Henry, there's this term, uh, an accurate historian, you know, just to be just so accurate with what I have to glean from memory about events that have happened that were kind of cloudy. Yeah. In parts. So, yeah. Good. So you made a lot of spiritual references. You referenced your Judaism and Buddhism. I know you're involved as a practitioner. Can you speak a little bit about that part of you? Well, it's an empty snowfield, as my my creative writing professor, Mage Reagan, once said, you know, a poem is an empty snowfield. Life is an empty snowfield without tracks. And potential, potentiation, choice, decision, every moment is fresh and clean. Every moment is an empty snowfield. And when we place a foot, it dissolves and disappears immediately. So... Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, uh, the, ha, the Hasidic grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, said, life is a very narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to be afraid. What the very narrow bridge is, is time, is this moment. The narrow bridge is the exact moment that we touch here and now. This is the bridge of life. This is the bridge of love. And the fear does come from thinking past and future, of worry and concern about what might come. In the fullness of this present moment, there's infinite opportunity and potential. And when we rest in it, we can just begin to touch or glimmer on that. Was your childhood religion Judaism? Were you really steeped in that growing up? Yeah, I was. I was, I was raised reform. Uh, you know, I had uh, all the uh, rituals that you know, uh, a Jewish person has, uh, including bar bat mitzvah. And I was raised in a reform stream. And, but my mother was Irish Catholic. And, um, you know, upon reflection in my 30s and 40s, I began to understand how it led to, a, to a, an understanding of the validity of all the world's religions, all the world's traditions. Uh, the Zen master Dogen says, there are many languages, but one tongue. And I think that that one tongue is expressed in poetry, but it's also expressed through every religious tradition. When did you start dabbling in, in Buddhism? Yeah, so, um, you know, I had, uh, I'm very open about the fact that I had repressed memories in high school, and I had uh, difficulty, and it fueled this question, which I feel is like a universal, the universe gave me a koan, like a, an illogical question, 
which was what is the matter with me? I had had these very difficult experiences, lost contact with the memory and something in me knew that there was something not congruent. And so I was like, well, what is the matter with me? And so I went to Israel after college, after studying English literature at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio. And it was there that I really began my spiritual uh, searching that a friend had sent me the snow leopard. I was reading about world's traditions. I was studying Torah and Talmud. And when my friend sent me the snow leopard, he sent it because he was into nature and conservancy. And I took that and it was a pointed, you know, it's a pointed, beautiful expression of Matheson's understanding of, of just life and Zen. So it was really that that blew the doors and windows out, out of my mind. And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on with that spiritual awakening. It took me probably decades to, and you know, I, th- I think that I still work with, uh, that was when I was 24. I still work with understanding and it's changing my place and relationship with that experience. So have you studied Zen Buddhism more formally? I live across from the Rochester Zen Center. To study Zen is really, as Dogen says, it's to study oneself. And so Zen comes from the Sanskrit dhyana, which means meditation. And it migrated from India to China, where it became Chan, C-H, apostrophe and Chan. And there were six patriarchs of Zen in China. And then Dogen brought Zen from, or Chan, from China to Japan, where it became Zen. Zen literally is from the Sanskrit dhyana, which just means meditation. So it's a mind-only school or trying to get Bodhidharma was trying to reform what he had seen in uh, Buddhism as, at that time, getting back to the original message of what the Buddha taught, which was essentially meditation. We, we were talking yesterday when you, you were talking with me on your podcast about finding your own path. Yeah. So how did you integrate Buddhism with your commitment to Judaism? I love this question. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite writers is Matheson. And he says, he said that Zen is known as the religion before religion. Its practice is so not belief oriented. It's beyond words and letters that there's no, nothing that the formation of language or belief is, can be an impediment to perceiving reality. And yet, when you see reality, you can express words and letters appropriately. So what does that mean? What is that, right? It's a good question. So because it's the religion before religion, it fits nicely. And I I have like copies of the ethics of our fathers, the the ethics of our fathers, uh, which is the Talmud, which deals specifically with ethics in Judaism and the rabbis sort of like mashing out the, the teachings, the written portion of Judaism, the the Torah, the Bible, and mashing out what does this really mean? What are the lessons that we can glean from this? And that's the Talmud. So like, I see it all as just sort of like a vast collection of wisdom that I can access now, I think. Yeah. With, with, let me just say this, with Zen being the direct experience of what I am, Zen is the, what is ultimate, what is real, is nothing that can be touched. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. So this must have influenced your uh, podcast, Unraveling Religion. <laughs> yeah. That's a great name. I've always loved that. So what are you unraveling when you're unraveling religion? I think when I began, 
I just think that there's so much misconception about religion because it's been placed in the hands of people who loved power over the message of love in religion. And so people who, who wanted to utilize it as a chess piece have kind of disembodied it from its inherent place in our hearts. Like the message that not only is God love and loves us, but our relationship with it or her or him, it doesn't exist outside ourselves. It doesn't exist in some book. The, the revelation of God, revelations, revelation of God is impinged by our ego. But when we, when, we, when we work to dismantle that, and ego does have its place, Henry, as we've talked about, but when we work to dismantle that, we see clearly that the originator, the orchestrator of all this, as I've said before, is selfless and giving. And the lessons are hard, and so it's confounding. And the lessons are painful, and it's confounding. And the lessons hurt, and we're, we lose, and we have grief, and we have loss, and we have trauma. And yet through this, there's something very beautiful that happens in the struggle that transforms each one of us. And that's, I feel, the reason why it's given. The, the reason why struggle is given or obstacle is given is, is, is a growth facilitator. So what you're unraveling is the constraints that religions put on themselves. Well, yeah, that they put on themselves and they put on pe people, the general population. Yeah. The dogmas and even the techniques, maybe. You know, when you were talking about Zen, I have a little exposure to Zen, but, but not a lot. It's always struck me as being somewhat technique-oriented. But in the other traditions I've looked at, including in psych psychology, by the way, not just spiritual traditions, technique is the way to get to an experience. Mm -hmm. And there's more than one technique. I've grown to believe that part of the challenge and gift is you can form your own technique. I so couldn't you, agree with you more. Yeah. You, use, you use whatever is out there. So I grew up Roman Catholic and started to have difficulty with it, probably in high school, but especially in college. And then was kind of agnostic and then probably got into a little bit of shamanism and then into Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism, not Zen. And even that is an example, the, the, the difference between Zen and Vajrayana Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism. Someone told me a story once that there was a monk who was in a, a Zen monastery and the monastery offered their monastery to a Tibetan group to host a convocation with the Rinpoche. So they turned it into a Tibetan kind of monastery you know, for the weekend or whatever. So the Zen monastery was sparse and bare. Have you ever seen a Tibetan celebration or monastery? It is colorful, noisy, full of tankas, an altar, a throne. And the story was that the Zen monk kind of like peeked into the main room and just gasped and said oh, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness you know so it's like they can both get you to the same place but i'm not even sure anymore so when i started sufism and i bought this for a while it was like make a commitment to this path because if you have your feet in two canoes you'll just fall into the water 
you need to stay with one path and one canoe. And, and I bought that for a while. Mm -hmm. And that is just not my nature. No, and, it's not. I know you. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, I can form my own canoe. You know, I don't, I know how, I know when I'm going around. Well, I don't always know when I'm going around in circles. And there were some teachers I had in the Sufi path. And so I'm studying Sufism. And then in an organization, a Sufi organization that I was not a major part of, but I was kind of like a cousin organization. You know, the head of that organization was a Sufi teacher, but he also had a Buddhist teacher and he had an Indian music teacher. And I, I looked at that. And I said, well, he didn't go crazy. He seems to be in a very nice direction. And then one of my favorite Sufi influences is Murshid Samuel, Murshid's teacher, uh, Samuel Lewis, who was an American. And he got recognized, he, he traveled to Asia and he got recognized as a Dharma, Dharma transmitter, was oh. given a robe and he yeah. was a Zen master. And he yeah. traveled to the Middle East and he was recognized as a Sufi master. Mm -hmm. And then he also taught Christian mysticism, mm -hmm. all wrapped into one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, more and more I'm thinking techniques are like the finger pointing away, but they're not the only finger. And if you can tolerate more than one finger or you need more than one finger, you do it. You do it. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And my affinity for Zen and Judaism is specific and unique to me in this incarnation. So I certainly don't mean to promote ever. Promoting, as I understand it, is antithetical to both Zen and Judaism. I'm not seeking to uh, promote it. I mean, I, I hesitatingly talk about it because we're here and it makes sense. But the affinities, the karmic affinities of spiritual paths are unique to each of us. And so I pulled up this quote by T.S. Eliot that I think is really relevant. And it says, we shall not cease from exploring. And in the end of all our exploring, we will to be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Yes. So let me read it one more time so I get it right. We shall not cease from exploring, exploration. And in the end of all our exploring, we will be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Yes. Yes. He's talking about the empty snowfield. He's talking about what Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav was talking about, that this moment appears and vanishes, but it doesn't really vanish. There's a timeless quality to it that is the bridge for our experience here as a human being. Yeah. And then I'm told in the golden century, whenever that was, there were rabbis that were Sufi leaders and Sufi peers who were heading synagogues. Yeah. Um, it's not what a lot of us think now that they were always fighting with each other. I'm fond of saying these days, you know, a mystic is a mystic is a mystic. Yeah. And you can, you come to the same place at the end. You just go there by, by a variety of roads. I want you to, uh, recite another poem for us. Sure, yeah, I'd love to. A poem that would be relevant. Oh, this is sweet, yeah. When I had my time in Israel after college, I volunteered in different capacities. And one of the ways that I volunteered was in a kindergarten. And so on the last day of my volunteering there, 
this poem came. And when I say it, I try to be an accurate historian, this is exactly what happened. And it just came out in this poem form. And when we say the word gan, G-A-N, gan, means literally in Hebrew, it means garden. But it's also a gan is a kindergarten. So it goes like this, gan or garden in a kindergarten in the Middle East. Tree rooted in past, present, future, in a field of children, seated. They pop up like tulips and shake their sunlit petal heads toward me to toss their arms around my neck so gently they leave no trace. One after another, these are the little treasures expressing the great secret. That is so sweet. <laughs> that is so That's, sweet. Yeah. Can you read that once more, please? I'd love to, yeah. Gone in a kindergarten in the Middle East. Tree rooted in past, present, future, in a field of children, seated. They pop up like tulips and shake their sunlit petal heads toward me to toss their arms around my neck so gently they leave no trace. One after another, these are the little treasures expressing the great secret. I'm so glad you read that. That really oh. touches my heart. Yeah, thank you. Before we move on, a question came in. What's the difference between Rinzai and Soto Zen Buddhism? So, yeah, so Rinzai and Soto Zen, it's actually, you know, Bodhidharma from, uh, from India to China. And then there was, there was the northern and southern versions of Zen in China. Uh, one school was the Sudden Enlightenment, which like uh, they would practice practices that would shatter and... Uh, open someone to reality in a moment's notice and and like just like a, a like a thunderbolt uh that's rinzai rinzai as i understand it that's rinzai that uh it's like a sudden sudden awakening soto is the slow ripening the slow ripening over time and both have their place it's like many things that complement one another the soto school is uh it was made famous by shunru suzuki in Zen mind, beginner's mind, he was a disciple of the Zen master Dogen. And uh, Rinzai, you know, Rinzai is, uh, I think it's koan laden and uh, has different practices to like really precipitate that shattering, that awakening experience. So one is a slow ripening and the other is like a sudden school, sudden school of enlightenment. Thank you for explaining that. And like anything else, you might think you're on one path and surprise, you're on the other. Yeah, yeah. I, I know of people that are on on slow paths, and then they have an experience, and they're shattered. And some people try to have a shattering experience, but it's a slow burn. Yeah. So yeah, you can think you're on a path and do what seems to suit you, but you know, Saint Paul did get knocked off his horse with a bolt of lightning. So I know in all of this, because you and I have talked, this has also influenced your commitment to reconceptualizing mental health issues. Yeah. So in the very beginning, when we spoke about the reasons for incarnating, this is one of the sort of like, I am certain and forgive me, I don't mean to 
project my certainty onto others. But for myself, I am certain that I have a mission here. There are things that must be accomplished by me that I've sort of as a soul contracted to do. One of them is to re-envision or revision our understanding of mental health and mental health distress. And it's becoming more and more prominent as we get more and more disconnected from ourselves through technology and through city life and through just the ways in which we value commodity and the dollar over human kindness and compassion. And so all these things make us sick. They cause stress and they they cause distress. And when it's pronounced enough, it becomes pathology. But um, one of the benefits of that is that, you know, I've been thinking about this in terms of capacity of a soul to hold suffering. They used to refer to Gandhi as Mahatma, a great soul, because I think, and I've thought about that, and I've thought, what does that mean? And I think it's the capacity to hold suffering and manage it and make sense out of it and translate it into wisdom and then offer it to the community. A soul that isn't as adept at holding its suffering sometimes lashes out and causes problems. And we see it pervasive in the trial in Kenosha. All throughout our culture, it's it's riddled with people who cannot master themselves or hold their their difficulties within themselves is is management. And so this really informs our mental health because one of the things in indigenous cultures is that psychosis, the very nature of psychosis, is considered a spiritual awakening. I befriended Phil Borges, or he's befriended me, we're friends. <laughs> and uh, he, what he's come to learn in his, he did the documentary Crazy Wise, And what he's learned is that what he expresses to me is that it's a sensitivity that oftentimes very, very, very artistic, sensitive souls have so much distress that they break and they have to reorganize themselves and recalibrate and evolve. And this is a precipitous factor in doing that is psychosis. And so it really, it it reimagines our view of really what mental health is, it's not pathology in the sense of like, yes, there is pathology there. And of course, it needs to be managed and treated sometimes with medications appropriately. But there's another side to that coin, which I want to express, and I feel so called to do so that it really is about an, an existential angst or a spiritual question, an existential question that is being answered in the process of the psychosis itself and its resolution, which sensitizes people to realms and aspects and beings that may not be perceived by someone who has not had psychosis. Now you can, this opens a whole Pandora's box of like, what is mental health? What is mental illness? What are spiritual gifts? And and really what is the experience of psychosis in the body? It's specific and unique to everybody. And not everyone who has psychosis is gonna become a shaman and not every shaman has psychosis. Right, that's part of what makes it so difficult. I remember when yeah. I was in training as a psychiatrist, I got enamored with R.D. Lang, and he spoke much of what you're talking about. And then the critique was, he also hurt a lot of people. There yeah. are some people who have to come through the experience, but there are some people who have to make sense of what happens to them, Yeah, suffering they're going through, and they yeah. can't heal unless they make sense of it. There are other people where they have to seal it over. 
And if you try to help them make sense of it, they have more suffering. So yeah. it has to do with their capacity. So and, much so, I couldn't agree with yeah, you more. And, and that, that, can be a hard, that can be a hard decision. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Well, I, I think that that's what you just said, that we don't talk about enough. I just like, you know, I feel part of what I'm compelled to do is to lay that option on the table or that kind of like potential and that people make up their own minds. Yeah. The other thing that I, I recognize early in my training, we would talk fairly often about what precipitants in a person's environment might be contributing to the suffering they're having. And also differentiating, this would usually come up in grief and depression, differentiating, well, is this a, a normal reaction to a tough event? Or is it a clinical syndrome that's beyond what you would expect given what happened to someone? Like an organic biological basis, yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. And usually that one would usually come up around grief. So somebody is grieving and has it kicked over into some sort of clinical depression or is it the grief you would expect? Mm -hmm. And you would treat one and support the other. Yeah. But there, there was an attention being paid to, is there something in the environment that's causing this? Mm -hmm. uh, more than just relations with family, like there is a toxin in the environment, what's going on? And then the field started to shift into, it's all oriented to brain and to your person. What is it in you that's not functioning correctly? And it was a subtle shift. I guess I was aware of it, but, you know, I mean, the 1990s, I think, were the decade, decade of the brain. and my experience as a psychiatrist is you would talk about what's going on perhaps in the family that's contributing to something yeah. or was there a major trauma for post-traumatic stress disorder but right. other than that there wasn't as much attention i felt being paid to you're a sane person in a crazy environment so we're trying to fix the person to adapt to a crazy environment yeah. The problem is the environment's crazy. And it's not changing. And so if you look at our cities and sort of like prepackaged food and just sort of the ways in which we're disconnected from the organic process of what we need to live, the prepackaging comes at a cost and that cost is our mental health. Yeah. I think the way, in, uh, the way society thinks about and treats people has a lot to do with how much suffering there is. So you're right. In, in, in other cultures, people are more accepting. Yeah, very much. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you have aberrant behavior or behavior that's not within the social contract or this talk today is about change yourself and change the world, the unity of mysticism. And yet we're not really taught or given the tools to go inward into ourself to find the language that the language and experience of who am I and what, you know, I have this body that does amazing things, but like, what's the motor that drives this? We don't generally tend to look at that. And I think that one of the messages that I'd love to convey is that by introspection, meditation, contemplation, and prayer, you really can come to a new understanding of yourself that really does begin to affect the world at large. Yes. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but 
Kathleen and I have started to watch uh, the first season of a series called Astrid. Has anybody here watched that? We get it on Prime Video, so it's a French series. And Astrid is a, uh, a autistic person. And the actress really does, a, the actress is not autistic, but she does a really good job. And so this person has this gift and she has all these, the social awkwardness that autistic people often have. And so we're most of the way through the series and the emphasis is on what a gift she has. So yes, she's awkward and she's rejected early on and made fun of by some people, but her gift is so special and she's so helpful. So a little bit like if you probably watch the American series Monk. So Monk has OCD, but because he's so compulsive, he sees all these details. Her gift as, as an autistic person is she has this photographic memory and she can put puzzles together that nobody else can do. Yeah. And she has an interest in criminology that came from her family. So she found somebody who recognized her gifts and she's learning to make friends. And one of my favorite parts is they have a group session of autistic people who are get, getting together in a support group. And they're talking about how crazy neurotypicals are. It's like, how do you deal with these neurotypicals? Because they never say what they mean. I, I never can figure out what they're talking about because they don't yeah. really, they're not telling me what they want. So yeah. I, I answer them and they take offense and they take offense so easily. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's just a riot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think part of what I like about it is when you find an environment or a culture or whatever that can not just tolerate you, but actually works to find out what's coming through that's a service, going back to where you even started in the beginning. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so do you, do you have to treat that person? I don't know. If you want to get rid of her gift, you know, why would you want to do that? I think it's, a, it, I really appreciate your commitment to, and, and you said as you were talking about mental health issues, yeah, people are suffering. This is not meant to, oh no, you just have a gift so you should suffer. You know, sometimes it has to be managed and, and you have to help people suffer less if you can. Certainly, certainly true. I mean, the, the treatment or non-treatment I leave, I don't address, but the process and the, the, re, the re-seeing of psychosis as maybe a potential spiritual opportunity and a potential gift I do want to introduce and put on the table, yeah. Yeah. So we're coming close to our end. So, so do you have a poem you'd like to, to wrap up with? Yeah, I, I want to, I always like to give the uh, the backdrop of the story behind a poem just quickly. You know, I had my own mental health struggles with uh, repressed memories and I was in the hospital and, uh, you know, I've talked about what is the matter with me as my own Zen koan, my, you know, the universe gave me that koan. But when I was in the hospital, I met a woman, uh, ZQ, and uh, she had dissociative identity disorder, which is always based in trauma. It's the fractured aspects or dissociated aspects of one's identity. So ZQ has 16 identities in all. And this is sort of a compendium to the uh, Through the Day poem in that I feel like 
if I could convey how this was, this came in a torrent, a blinding torrent of like my hand scratching on an envelope with a pencil. This came, I had no idea what it was, what was being said. And uh, I think months or weeks later, I looked back and saw a poem in it. And this is the poem. It's called One True Season, a poem for ZQ. ZQ has dissociative identity disorder with 16 identities in all. Within, many in the dance, tree, fall, leaf, spirals, still in air. Between toes curls greens and yellows, grass, the sound of clouds moving in the water. 16 and one and one and 16, what are names but labels? And through us, wind forms of things, air, tree, leaf, sky, water. Winter ground, summer ground, spring ground, and autumn ground are just faces of the earth, circling the sun, circled by the moon, just like you. Split the sky with a shriek to find the one true season that does not change. Oh, thank you. So we look forward to your autobiography coming out. Odyssey of Autumn's Breath. Yeah, I've been working on it pretty diligently. And uh, it's, it's a way I can make sense and offer to community the harsh lessons that I feel or hope no one ever has to learn. So when does Ground and Sky meet in Rochester? It's the first Wednesday at 7 o'clock. The first Wednesday of every month. So it meets 12 times a year. It's seven o'clock at Before Your Quiet Eyes. The premise of Ground and Sky is there's no mic, no list, and no podium. It's just organic roundtable discussion of life and poems, and we just share. And it's my attempt to build sacred community here. There's a question on, uh, do you talk on Zen or poetry in your group? Uh, there's nothing off limits in our group. Our, our group is generally, it's held in a very sacred kind of like trusting environment, which is really cultivated by each member. And there's not critique. We don't say that's a shit poem. You know, <laughs> we we support one another and we see the good in one another and, and we see the good in the poetry because the authentic expression is always beautiful. The authentic expression of poetry in life is always beautiful. So yes, I can offer a Zoom connection, um, Janice, to you. So people who listen to this podcast when it comes out in a, few, a couple of months, it, they can contact you through that. Absolutely. I welcome I welcome everyone. All right. Joel, J-O-E-L dot Lessies, L-E-S-S-E-S at gmail.com. That's correct. Yeah. And you can get a link that way to the poetry. Is it just poetry or do people read prose as well? It's an all's welcome. Any expressive art form, you can bring a tuba. You know, it doesn't matter. There you go. I like yeah. that. I'll take out my accordion. No, I won't. Beautiful. Yeah. So it starts at seven o'clock at Before Your Quiet Eyes, uh, Ground and Sky. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, I want to promote your podcast again, Unraveling Religion. Oh. Well, so, you know, Henry, you and I, you and I had a beautiful discussion yesterday. And if I could just tell the full story real quick, we had had sort of like, we thought we wanted to like shape a, a topic and it didn't, I just didn't, it didn't sit with me the right way. So like we went on a walk, right? And the, the proto title, the working title right now is On the Path, because you and I walked through a meadow and talked about how you were on the path. And 
I think these explorations of different kinds of spirituality, different beings that come onto the show have been, they've transformed me for sure. As you've mentioned, they have for you and your own and alchemical dialogues, but um, it's about religion, mysticism and psychology and spirituality and how the different ways that manifests, you know? So if people want to find it, they just go to their podcast streaming platform and plug in unraveling religion and you should show yeah you can you can either type in my name or you can type in unraveling religion and uh should come up and if anyone has questions about it please contact me i i never hear how it is received so (laughs) might be terrible i don't know (laughs) yeah we you know we ask people to also give reviews on the only place that we have that gives reviews is apple Podcasts, and i don't know if we've ever i think we've gotten one review Mm. Uh, so I don't know people don't, but I know people are listening to it. And Joel, we'll invite you back again if you're willing. Listen, our friendship, our friendship when we record these talks is just a joy. It's a joy to see really you and connect with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you, everyone. Take care. If you find yourself enjoying our podcasts, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom. Brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a nonprofit organization co-founded by Henry Curtella, MD, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.